streak going. Um, many of you know, many of you don't. Um, my, my grandfather uh, was a straight stallion. In fact, if you, look at, if you look up in Webster's, there's a picture of my grandfather under stallion, right next to the large horse. Um, he, was a, he was a beast. He was a farmer, um, hardworking guy, World War II vet, uh, fought in France. My grandfather had um, the biggest muscle eyelids that I've ever seen. Uh, when he blinked, I mean, it's like he worked out his eyelids, which probably only Kellen does here. But, uh, I mean, he was, just, he was just a strong, strong man. And um, uh, many of you guys know my grandfather died of cancer when I was 18. And he, uh, in so many words, passed the legacy uh, to me. In fact, um, I was in his room when he died and um, had read a passage from 2 Timothy for him. And the passage was, and God laid it on my heart in that moment, that, that you fought the good fight, that you finished the race, that you've kept the faith, and now there is in store for you the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to you on this day. And just this amazing moment, we're both crying, and he, he pulled me into him, his mouth into my ear, and he said, now you go and be that man. And so there, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about my grandfather, not a day that goes by that I don't remember the legacy that, his, that, that he passed to me. But one of the things that I loved and appreciated about my grandpa the most is I watched him. I wish I would have had more years to watch him, but I, ha- I did have some years to watch him. And when I watched him, I noticed that the older that he got, it was like his perspective on life changed. What I mean is, the older that I got, it seemed like farming got less important to him and hanging in after lunch and playing chess with his grandchildren got more important. See what I'm saying? It, it was like as he got older and, and I watched him, the less important it was for him to be up at five and to pick and shuck corn. Is that the right? Do you shuck corn, right? It, that got less important. And it seemed like it was more important for him, and I watched him and saw him do this often, wake up and immediately go to his knees on his bedside and spend hours praying. It was as if the older that he got, I noticed the less that he cared about some of the peripheral things, and the more he saw the bigger picture. He was first diagnosed with cancer when I was 16. And I can remember a specific conversation that I had with him when I was 16, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, Mark, maybe one day you will understand this great life that we have the opportunity to live in Christ. And when I heard that, what I saw was a man who was coming to grips with that, you know? Now, the reason I share all this is the man that we're reading right now The man that authored this letter that we're reading right now, John, is an old man. He's a grandfather. He's got massive OMP. I mean, this guy, this guy is a strong man. And when I read this letter, the perspective that I get from reading it is that this is a man who continually is teaching this particular group of people in this particular area of the world at a particular time the bigger picture. 
He seems to hit on all of the important things. And of course, he's writing in a specific context where it's been infiltrated by bad teaching. And all of that, there is no doubt. But it is as if John sees the bigger picture, understands what's really important, understands what his readers, if they could just get it now, they would be so far ahead. Are you with me? And so it's for that reason that when we turn in our scriptures tonight, in what I'm calling John's doctrine of love, which by the way, those words should instantly get you excited because of all the doctrines that we could learn in the scripture, the doctrine of love is clearly one of the most important. And so tonight as we turn to this passage, I want you in your heart to see from the perspective of an old man encouraging a bunch of believers that he loves dearly Challenging them to see the important things. So open your Bibles that are right in front of your face, in your pew, to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Now we saw this greater perspective in the last several weeks as we've been studying, testing spirits, which instantly brings out the crazies. You know what I'm saying? It uh, promotes a lot of good conversation. And in the bigger picture, John sees... Not just this physical realm that's happening, but this whole peripheral spiritual realm that's always around. And so it's been important for him to teach his readers what it looks like to test spirits. And then we get to verse 7. Let me pause before I read and say this. Um, Many of you will remember, aesthetically, um, Noah and I, more Noah than me, in the first few weeks that we started First John. Do you guys remember those three frames that were up there on the stage? Do you remember what they said? Anyone? It was really memorable for all of you. This is awesome. It's, yeah, it said God is love. is really creative. Like there was some light gels and a cool like sheet behind it and then a light behind it, right? It was like our artwork, which maybe we'll put out in the hallway sometime, you know, right? But, but listen to this. It's as if we've been waiting for, for those three words. And tonight we get them, right? So verse seven, here we go. First John chapter four, verse seven. Beloved. Which is a phenomenal way to open, right? If you're going to talk about love, it's good to go ahead and open up with beloved. Which literally means that we've seen it several times before. Those who are loved by God. Again, he's writing to Christians. Beloved, he says, let us love one another. For love is from who? From God. Thank you for the participation. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So quick glance, you're like, okay, is John from the school of redundancy school? You know what I mean? Like, we, we've, already, we've already studied loving one another. In fact, this is, this is the third time that we've seen this rhetoric, let us love one another. So why does it seem like everything is so repetitious? Why does it seem like he just keeps coming back? Again, he's writing from this greater perspective. Look at this, look at this. He's already told us that the heretics were claiming Christian fellowship. He said they were in us, and then they went out, Scripture says, from us. And so for John, it is absolutely critical that he keeps teaching this idea of what it means to stay connected because they've been left with some baggage. You see what I'm saying? They've been left with, hey, hey, I thought you were part of us. You were claiming to be a Christian and then you went off 
and he went off the deep end and started saying naughty things about Christ. Like, and so they've been left with this sense of, who are we? And so John comes back to, let us love one another. Put up verse 7 for me. The first thing that he does, right, great movie. The first thing that he does is he communicates the call. Let us love one another. If you're taking notes, this is very applicable to you because it's the same call that's on your life. Now, the thing I want to point out briefly is that the scripture to love one another wasn't some fantastic thing that John came up on his own. He wasn't all of a sudden in here writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was like, oh, this is a brilliant concept. I've never heard it before. Let us love one another. This is good. Jesus will like this. No, no, no. Matthew chapter 22, the Ten Commandments, this is coming straight from the mouth of Christ. Now, it, it, looks, a little, it looks a little bit different in Matthew chapter 22. It is, love thy neighbor as thine self in the old King James, right? So there's this piece of neighbor in there, which is slightly different than what John's talking about here. But the call is crystal clear. Let us love one another. I've told you guys many, 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 many times before. Everyone everywhere, no matter where they are, no matter what they're coming from, they're looking for two things. What? Love and truth in that order. Everyone everywhere, you, that includes you. Your existence in you, you're looking for those two things, love and truth. The reason why it's so important that you and I understand what John's writing here is culturally, the way that this verse would read is, Beloved! Let us love one another if the other person provides some advantage for you or if the other person provides some comfort for you or if the other person can satisfy even some of your sexual needs. That's what culture would say. If culture was writing a Bible, that would be the passage, right? If you're taking notes, write that down, right? Beloved, let us, one, let us love one another if... John doesn't do that here. He says, let us love one another. It is a travesty when the church misguides what the premise of loving one another is. Let me say that again. It's a travesty when the church doesn't understand this concept. When the church gets up in what I'll call the politics of love. Listen. I've, if I've seen it once, I've seen it. Come up with a number, number Jamie. If I've seen it once, I've seen it 143 times in the church. All right? The politics of love. What I mean is, in the church, if this person can provide for me something, uh, namely Cardinals tickets, right, which I would sell on, on Craigslist for lots of money, right? <laughs> or they, they can provide me with other relationships. They can provide me with networks. Uh, they can provide me with uh, this sense of comfort. They can provide me with this, then I love them. Now, the church has done something else. The church has said, here is truth, the way we define truth. And if you accept our truth as the way we define truth and fit into one of our country club subcategories, guess what, beloved? Then we'll love you. This is not the picture of loving one another. I am so burdened by the fact that I see church communities and even our own community 
living under this premise of the politics of love. We only love when it provides us some type of advantage. The problem with that way of loving is that in John's day and age, that would have got the church nowhere, and it would have shown the church to be inept. You see what I'm saying? One of the greatest revelations of what God has done in us is our evidence of loving one another. One of the greatest powers that we have is reflecting the love of Christ by showing that in here, even sinful, depraved people who have been blood-bought and ransomed by the blood of Christ can love each other. You see what I'm saying? I fear that culturally we've been so influenced, and I would imagine the same in John's day, that it was all about if this person could provide me something, then I would love them. Let me tell you something. What I see in the Scriptures is loving when love does not make sense. What I see in the Scriptures is loving when love makes no sense at all. It's that kind of love that I want to see the church get wrapped up in. It does not make sense for me to love you at all. You provide me no clout. You, you, you smell, right? We're in completely different social categories. You'd never rock these Michael Jackson shoes. We're completely different. We can't talk football. There's no reason that I should love you. But... The love of Christ is loving when love doesn't make sense. Friends, are you wrapped up in that at all? Or is your life riddled with love that that makes complete sense? Let me ask you this. Today, as you've been journeying through your life at Walmart, anyone go to Walmart today? Quick poll. This is going to be interesting. Me and, is that McNeil? Dude, we were both in Walmart today. Awesome. Which one? You're pointing in a direction... One of the nine million that way. (laughs) Includes stinking Tokyo. They got Walmarts over there. Are you kidding me? I mean, what do you do after that? He's an elder, crying out loud, you know? Supposed to have this connection in your day as you've been journeying. Let's use a different example. Right? The food market. In Soulard, right? Yeah. Have you found yourself looking for opportunities to love when love doesn't make sense? There is almost no greater life-giving element than reflecting the love of Jesus when it makes no sense at all. Guys, I don't want to be a part of community, and I fear at times that we become it, that, that we look too much like each other. You see what I'm saying? That we, that we just look too much like each other. We would all hang out. I want to start seeing people in this community that I would never have hung out with before because I'm experiencing the love of Christ so much that it just doesn't make sense, but it's absolutely beautiful. There was a, a youth pastor, a friend of mine, his nickname was Spam when I was growing up. Quick story. And Spam took an interest in me as a young man. I was 14, I was crazy. Um, 
I was a revolutionary in my church. The old people did not like me whatsoever um, because I talked loudly and talked about Jesus and, and uh, sang hymns in a whole different way. But this young, um, this guy who became my youth pastor took an interest in me when it didn't make sense. It wasn't good for him politically. It was going to take time to invest in me. He also took an interest in a young man named Timothy Edwards, which many of you know is now a missionary in Thailand who we're connected with. He's going to be here in August uh, teaching us some things in August. Looking forward to that. But if it wasn't for that opportunity in my life for someone to love when love didn't make sense, let me tell you something. My wife, love did not make sense. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I married up like 1,500 categories, you know? It did not make sense. But it was a phenomenal opportunity for me to experience the grace of God. So the first thing that he does is he communicates the call. Let us love one another. And the verse goes on. For love is from God. Don't you love John? So much love here tonight. Don't you love John? Because he never just leaves you with the call. All right, go love one another. Good luck, you know. He never does that. And in this case, he gives us the how and the why. The how and the why is let us love one another for love is from God. Now we're going to develop the concept a little bit more here in a second. For love to come from God, it means that God is the source of it. It means that to understand love, we better understand God. Are you guys with me? Now I want to tell you something because I've been wrestling with this all week. So to to understand the love of God, then what must I understand? The first thing I must understand is mercy. The character of God and the way that he expresses his love, especially in the Old Testament, is shown as mercy. In other words, all of these people, after Adam, are completely sinful. They deserve death. But God does not kill all of them, right? And so he continually shows mercy. He continually is extending mercy. He is not giving to people what they deserve. They deserve death. He doesn't extend it. He doesn't give it. In the New Testament primarily, even though this concept is seen in the Old as well, post-Christ, we see this concept of what? Of grace, Now, the concept of grace is we don't deserve Christ at all, but he gives it. So in the Old Testament, primarily mercy, the people aren't getting what they deserve, death. In the New Testament, they are getting what they don't deserve. Let let me me ask you something. The amazing thing about the love of God is he is constantly, constantly loving when love makes no sense. You see what I'm saying? That's That's what I'm talking about. Mercy and grace make no sense. And that's why many of you are double standard McGee's. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you a double standard McGee? Okay? Write that on your notepad if you're taking the Greek notes here. Um, Here's what I mean by that. Many of you place standards on others that you yourself will never uphold. You see, one of the most important parts in John's day was for these people to reflect the need of the grace of God. And not in this moment. 
impose some human standard that they themselves weren't even following. Ergo, the Pharisees. Have you ever heard of them, right? Many of you live in a constant double standard. You have placed on people all of these expectations that you yourself can never withhold and never follow. And when they fail, all hell breaks loose, doesn't it? Listen, listen, especially mentally. I'm not just talking about expressively when you take a baseball bat to their face, you know. I'm talking about mentally. Listen to this. When some of your friends fail, is, is the first thing that goes in your mind, I can't believe that that person would ever do that. I mean, come on. What's wrong with them? Oh, when we do it in the name of accountability, I'm just holding them accountable. I'm just holding them to the biblical standard. Really? Then what happened to the biblical standard of grace? And then, and then some of you in your mind, you're like, well, hold on a second, Mark. Haven't you taught us not to coddle? Most certainly. But you'll understand that coddling and true accountability and true extending grace and mercy must always happen with the motive of love. If love has any other motive or agenda, it is not love. Some of you are so wrapped up in the double standard of love that for you to really understand the concept that love is from God, you're completely disconnected from it because you think it's completely cultural. Let me tell you something. To understand love coming from God, then you must constantly extend grace and mercy. Are you a gracious person? Do people look at you and say, that person gives me what I don't deserve. They give me patience when I don't deserve it. How about, how about some of you guys? Struggle with patience a little bit? They give me a moment of their time when I don't deserve it. The last question I'll ask about all of that is since when do you define what people deserve and what they don't deserve? What made you the judger of deserving? Was that your mama? You know? Did your mama one day say, son, you are the judger of, you know? And if so, then we can talk because your mama, I'm sure, is amazing, right? Yeah. Listen, I want to be a part of a community of believers that is constantly extending grace and mercy to reflect the love of the Lord Jesus Christ while at the same time holding one another accountable in love while not coddling and saying it's going to be all right. No, it won't be all right, but all we got is each other. If we start kicking each other to the curb when we're sinning, I mean, what do we got at that point? We need to be the constant body that's reminding each other of what love truly is. And then he says in the last part of verse 7, the blessing of the how and why. You can love one another because love is from God and God is in you. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Several times we've already talked about this. Born of God, knows God. It's those people that love God because they can't help not. Listen, can you just not help yourself? Love just continually comes out because you've just been born of him and you're just constantly... Let, let, me, let me tell you something. Knowing God and knowing love in my life happened when my parents got divorced. You want to talk about learning about love when it doesn't make sense, right? My parents got divorced when I was 18 years old. 
I have two sisters in this church that were affected by that same thing. Let me tell you what I learned. And you'll understand what John is saying. And the premise is, the more you know God, the more you know love, because love comes from God. And so in this chaos, we're struggling with divorce, we're confused, we don't know what's happening, our family's being torn apart, they're living in different homes, all this separation happens, and you know what, I was continually reminded by Father God who loves, is Mark, I hold you in the palm of my hand. I don't care what chaos happens. I don't care who dies or what hits. You are protected by the seal of the Spirit, and I hold you in the palm of my hand. And so amidst chaos, I sit back and say, I've learned a lot about God, and I've learned a lot about love. Listen, for John's readers, it was so critical in this moment in time that they not begin to raise this human standard, but they stay connected, extending grace and mercy all the time. Verse 8 gets crazy interesting. He then does what he often does in the Scriptures. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. First part of the verse, anyone who does not love does not know God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, he has already told us, whoever does not love abides in, anyone remember? Abides in death. Pretty good picture, right? Anyone who doesn't love abides in death. Anyone, right? Bueller, anyone want to be a part of that crew, right? But, but that's his point. Anyone who does not love abides in death. So what does not loving look like? Because one of John's biggest things is he wants people to be able to identify the false teachers so they don't get confused. What does not loving look like? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like all the things we've already been talking about. To not love is to not love graciously, to not love mercifully, right? To not love is to not extend love when it does not make sense. And so when you see individuals, listen, who are living in this self-gratifying, self-motivating love. I love you if you love me, and we'll all be one happy family. Didn't write that before, promise, right? If you get that, then all of you all of, you, all of a sudden understand what it means to not love. And then he says this little chunk of verbiage, God is love. Do any of you even begin to understand the weight of theos, agape, esten? Literally, God, love is. The essence of God is love. Listen, do any of you even begin to comprehend those three words? Before we talk about it, I know this sounds strange, we need to set a few ground rules in this place, okay? First ground rule, if you're taking notes and want to put these on your fridge, please do. First, uh, first ground rule, love does not define God, God defines love. What I mean is, to say God is love, it doesn't work the other way around. Love is not God. That's what our culture struggles with. Oh, there's love over there, that must be where God is. It's a small world after all. You see what I'm saying? I mean, listen, 
When you say God is love, it brings out all, it brings out the pins and the bumper stickers and the tattoos and the forehead. I mean, it brings out the people because they're all living in this God is love kind of prance merry-go-round idea. Listen, God defines love. He's the source of it, not the other way around. Love does not produce God. God produces love because he is in essence, in nature, love. Do you guys understand? Are we on the same page? So when we see love, let me pause. Here's another thing, and McNeil and I were talking about this in Walmart in Tokyo uh, the other day. Um, I've heard many dads say this, and I'm not ridiculing you mostly, but um, I've heard many dads say this. They have a kid, and they say something effective. Man, now I understand so much more about God's love. Okay. Um, when I had Avery, the thing that I realized was how much I don't understand God's love. Because I realized that I love my little girl Avery and now Dawson. They have no idea how much I love them. I mean, they're just sitting around cooing and cawing and, you know, whatever they do. Is ca a baby thing? I don't know. I mean, they're, they're just doing their thing. They have no idea how much I love them. You see, it doesn't work the other way around. What I learned when I had a kid is, I have no idea how much he really loves me. That's why God defines love and not love defining God. Are you with me? Ground rule number two. God is not subject to any human definition of love. This is one of the biggest cultural issues we have. Oh, my girlfriend checked she loved me on the note. Oh, that must be the same love that God and I have. This is so nice. It feels so good with her. It must feel so good with him. This is heresy. And and I don't want to make light of it at all. Listen, the moment by your human standards that you begin to thrust your ideas of love in this physical form on God is the moment, friends, that you have no idea what you're doing. But this is what the culture is doing all the time. We have this friend circle of ours, and it's so special. And God sits at the center of it, and man, just all of this love is all around. It's like, what? No. Any human definition of love, God is not subject to. Number three, the therefore statement. Therefore, God can be the only judge of love. If you're the source of it, If you made it, if you're the origin of it, guess what? That means you can judge it. Anyone the origin of it, right? And see, that's what I'm saying. In your God complex of thinking somehow that you create the standards, what we were talking about earlier, friends, you need to repent of that because only God can judge what it is and what it is not. So now that we've set the ground rules, can I play with your frontal lobe a little bit, right? Now, That's your brain, frontal lobe. I'm going to ask you three questions. That sounded bad. I'm sorry about that. God forgive me. I'm going to ask you three questions. These these questions, um, first question, can God do anything unlovable? Now, this isn't a moment of response. I don't want you to raise your hand or to show me the flashcard, right? Can God do anything unlovable? You see, for us to understand God is love and the implications that it comes from, 
and what John is trying to tell his readers, then for me the first question is, can God do anything unlovable? I would imagine that as you're thinking about that question, you're beginning to feel the weight of God as love just an itsy bitsy more. See what I'm saying? Can God do anything lovable? Second question, and we'll come back to the first. Is there a difference between what God does and what God allows? Or said a different way, is there a difference between what God does and what God chooses to intervene in? Is there a difference? Is there a difference? The third question is what does the answer to number two imply for the question of number one? This is the question that our culture is trying to understand. If God is so loving, how many of you have ever heard that opening line? If God is a loving God, then dot, dot, dot. If God claims that he's all love, then why is he this, this, this? When John makes the statement, God is love, he wants to completely blow their minds about the one who's going to empower them to love each other. It's beautiful. So, first question. Can God do anything unlovable? Well, the scripture says, go back to the scripture, Andrew. Too slow. I got you. Right? Can God do anything unlovable? Well, God is love. Quick math, no. Right? Do you understand what that answer does now? Can God do anything unlovable? The answer is no. Is the weight starting to come down a little bit more now? Okay, second question. Is there a difference between what God does and what He allows? Or, said another way, intervenes in. In the garden, we've talked about this concept before. Did God take the apple and thrust it into the mouth of Adam and Eve? Was he like, here you go, right? And he just implanted in there, and they took a bite, and then he withdrew the apple. No, he did not do that. But clearly God allowed or said a different way, listen to this, did not intervene. Listen, it doesn't mean that the garden was not his plan. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that the garden wasn't part of the plan. If the garden wasn't a part of the plan, we wouldn't have Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. The garden, even though this is hard for us to grasp, is a part of the plan. God does allow, doesn't act in it by shaking the apple in front of their face, but sin comes into the world. Are you guys with me? That's one example. Now, the second example is most importantly seen in Satan. Scripture says that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Do those things sound very loving? Anyone? If anyone says, I want to steal, kill, and destroy you, you're like, man, this is love. What is love, baby? You know? I mean, you're just like, let's, right? No. If someone says that to you, let me tell you something, they don't love you, right? Satan's power, though, is what? It's temporary. 
and it has been allowed him. You see what I'm saying? Well, well, why has it been allowed him? It's been allowed him so that God could get the victory, could get the glory, could show the fullness of his love. And so is there a difference between what God does and what he allows or intervenes with? I would say the answer to that question is yes. So what do we do then with the implications from the answer to number two for the implications to the question of number one? Here's what we do. We have no ability to even fathom the depth of God's love. You see what I'm saying? Listen, I sat in my office all day today. Literally all day. I had one meeting with Charles. It was great once at McAllister's. I had a turkey club. All right? But besides that, besides that, I was sitting in my office and all day long, I, just, I literally, and Jeff came in at one point this afternoon, he's like, are you okay? Because my hands were just in my head, and I was just like, I do not even begin to fathom how deep the love of God is. Nor can I even begin to fathom the fact that he loves himself more than anything. He's a jealous God and ultimately is working his plan out so that he receives the most amount of glory. So does God do things that are always loving? Yes. Why? Because he's about himself. And the moment that I get confused about that is the moment that I begin to think that God is all about this loving relationship with me. No, I have the grace and the opportunity to even see and experience manifestations of his love. That's the beauty of the love of God that you and I have the access to. And so we sit back in a confused, depraved world and we don't have to continually ask the question, well, if God is so loving, then blah, 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 blah. We get to sit back and say, I know that the truth of the Scripture, not the hope of the Scripture, is God is love, period. He's working it all out for His good and His plan and His desires. And in that moment, listen, in that moment, if you're like, I don't want to serve a God that loves His own plan more than me, then let me tell you something, you're not a part of Christianity. You are a heretic, you believe in heresy, and you believe in something that's anti-gospel. Oh, Mark, that's harsh. Really? The moment that I feel like my relationship with God exploded was the moment that I surrendered myself. The moment when God empowered me by his opening of my blind eyes to see that he is love and he's working all of this out for his end glory. Listen, if you're not excited about that, I'm sorry, but that's what's happening here. For some of you, that is the most life-giving thing because it doesn't rest on your shoulders at all. So you're sitting now in your pew and you're saying, glory be to God that I have no unfathomable idea of the depth of your love. And there's others of you that are still like, I wish you would just love me more. For those people, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. 
He doesn't just say God is love to his readers in the hopes that they get encouraged and get the butterflies. He then comes back to the whole point of his gospel and the whole point of his epistle, and it's this. I, as God, am not concealing my love. I made it manifest. I showed you my love. I sent my only son, humbled from heaven, lived a perfect life, died a bloody death, raised from the grave. I showed you Christ. And the beautiful thing about John is he saw it. He's already told us that. He saw the miracles. He heard the teachings. He saw the manifestation of the love of God. Romans 5.8 says what? God showed us his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He showed his love. He revealed his love. Look, here it is. And, and, and he's not denying the fact that it's still so crazily deep, right? We will never really be able to grasp the depth of it but Christ. And so for those of you in here that are like, you know, I just don't feel, I just don't feel this whole love God thing. I'm praying that God opens your eyes because when I realized the manifestation through the love of Jesus Christ, my friends, there was no turning back. That's not a hope. That's the truth of the Scripture. And what does the Scripture say? In this love of Christ, the love of God was made, made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world. And what's the last part? So that we might live through Him. The Greek word of through there it literally means this. It means on the account of him or by the means of him. Can I share a passage with you guys? Not that you have a choice, right? You guys are just like jumping to it. No, freak Zoid, don't read the, look. At the end of his high priestly prayer, can I share this with you guys? The end of his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, John wrote both of these. He says this in verse 26. Listen to this. He's praying this to, to Father God and he says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me read that again. I have made known to them your name as Father and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Living through Christ, coming from his high priestly prayer, is I desire as Christ of this universe because of love to make a way for the Father to be known. And he says, I'm going to keep making him known. Don't you love that? In verse 8 we read, knowing God. And I, saw, I said, the more you know about God, the more you see his love. Christ is continually making known the things of God through the revelation of the Spirit, my friend. As overwhelming as God as love is, I sit back and I say this. But thank you for Christ. And maybe for one of the first moments in my life, I understand God is love.
And I understand that all of Scripture was pointing to and waiting on the manifestation, the coming of the revelation of God's love. And John's point to his readers in Asia Minor, infiltrated by heresy, is then how could you not love one another? How could you not? You're empowered by him. You've been saved by grace through the blood of Christ. How then could you not love each other when love doesn't doesn't make sense? Because I'll tell you this, the love of Christ from the human perspective makes no sense. And that's why the scripture says the cross is foolishness to the world because it makes no sense. But aren't you glad it's been made sense to you? Aren't you glad that your heart's been opened? So what do you do? What do I do? Maybe we hear this Roman chapter 8 verse in a different light. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will we not also give graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. And verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can I ask you that? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? From that God-pouring love that has been manifested in Christ. Who's going to separate us from that? Who's going to come between the relationships in this room? Who was going to come in between Asia Minor and say, no, 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 God's love isn't enough. Let me tell you guys something. Love is not achieved. That's what I love about the love of God. It is not achieved. It is graciously given. So why are you making your brothers and your sisters achieve it? The very premise of the love of Christ is as graciously given. What shall separate us, I ask, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for the sake we are being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, through that love, we can live. And it's the idea of that, the very revelation of that, that he shared with his disciples. On the brink of the sacrifice, 
He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. You guys understand the weight of the love of that moment? Do you now see it in a different light? Loving to be obedient. Loving his father. This is my body broken and shed for you. Take and eat. Then he raised the cup. And he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Take and drink. And do this in remembrance of me. And it was that very blood of Christ that shortly after would be shed so that the world could have the opportunity to know God's love. Tonight, Christians in this room respond by taking communion. And here at Matthias, we take it by what's called intinction. We pull off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. Tonight, my encouragement to you as we respond is that you pray in your pew, God, as I make this walk and as I repent of my sin, will you somehow, by your miraculous power, give me more understanding of how you are love? And when you take this meal tonight and you're reminded of the forgiveness for your sins made the way by Jesus Christ, Will you take it tonight in an absolute heart of gratitude? Thankful for the fact that God is love.